0: Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray, amen. So recently a new study was published by the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. And what they calculated in this study was that on average, it takes 50 hours of time with someone before you consider them a casual friend or I guess acquaintance. It takes 90 hours to become real friends and 200 hours with someone to become close friends. But what this study didn't examine is what it takes for friendships to maintain themselves for the long haul. Last month, one of my very best childhood friends got married in Scotland. We became friends because we were randomly assigned to be roommates at summer camp back when we were 16 years old. When you are stuck with somebody at summer camp for weeks, all day long, every day, it is very easy to accumulate those 200 hours extremely fast. So by the end of the summer, we were as close as any two people on the planet. But then, when summer came to an end, we went back to our respective high schools. Then we went to different colleges on opposite ends of the East Coast. And then we started our adult lives in two very different regions of the country. So as the years went by, the the people that we had experienced in each other at the age of 16 were very different than the people that we were at 26, at 36, and then one day eventually we'll get to 46. Although we had logged, we had gotten in that 200 plus hours to begin our friendship, we did not do any of that maintenance work to strengthen that relationship. And so by the time that she got married this summer, I felt like a total stranger looking at pictures of some random wedding in the Scottish Highlands on Facebook. I've never met her husband, so I can't tell you whether or not that he was from Scotland or if this was a destination wedding. I wouldn't know I wasn't invited. And that's okay because that relationship is not there. There are many things that we experience in life that are are so very exciting in the beginning and run such a huge risk of failure when the new wears off and the work actually has to begin. Think about, just, just think about all of the little restaurants right here in our area that, that come and go all the time. They have these big grand openings with celebrations and then three to six months later, they're just empty storefronts. People get married, they go on their honeymoon, they come back, they discover that somehow they still have to be with this person and pay bills and take care of life responsibilities and, and now work begins. When we think about the early church, we, we see them in a light that is not exactly accurate. We tend to think of that early church as these perfect Christians. The, these people who had it all together and knew what they were doing. They were just on fire for Jesus and they couldn't possibly get it wrong. And what we forget what we forget is that in so many ways, they're exactly like us. They were exactly like us. We were not dealing with perfect people. We're dealing with people that, that still had real jobs and had lives and things that they had to attend to and responsibilities that they had to participate in. But they did, they did put some things into place that would develop their new faith so that it would stand the test of time which apparently worked given that here we are some 2,000 years after the fact still gathered as the church. One of the main things that marked these early disciples of Jesus was their ability to magnify what was happening in the church out into the rest of the world. Now, if you think about the way that the early church started, it's very similar to compacting that 200 hours of time together all in one sitting, very much the same way that I became friends at 16. But somehow the church carried on and we did not. So what is the difference? The difference occurs when you view your faith as a lifestyle and not as a diet. A diet is something that you do, probably that you don't even like all that much, for a compartmentalized period of time to achieve some sort of end result. And then for the majority of us, the diet is over when we get to whatever result we were looking for. It's only those who embrace it as an entirely new lifestyle that end up maintaining the results that they were seeking in the first place. So I want to look at how this practice of worship went from being this compacted, regimented diet into a way of life for the early church. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, the church, they broke bread at home, and they ate food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of the people. It appears as though, like most endeavors, there's a whole lot of work on the front end. In the beginning, the people were always together. Now, we we don't really know what that looked like, but practically speaking, I cannot imagine that they were cloistered away from the rest of the world for more than a week or two, because remember, those early disciples still had jobs, they still had families, they still had obligations and life going on. But it's easy to see how in the beginning... There was this magnificent burst of of energy and interest in following the way of Jesus Christ. So these followers put in a lot of hours together at the beginning of the temple. Well, then it says that they broke bread at home with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. What this is saying is they took what was happening at the church back into their homes and into their daily living. When we read about the breaking of the bread, the first thing that comes to mind in churchy terms is communion, that that we, we break the bread. And we talk about this thing called the communion of the saints. Well, when you talk about the communion of the saints, you're talking about the saints in every place and age. So when we come to the communion table, it's not that we're just sharing communion with the people in this room. But we are sharing communion with the saints that have come before us, those that will come after us, and those all over the world. So then it's very easy to see how you can take the communion of the saints out into the world with you anytime that you are breaking bread with other believers. This this communion of the saints is the kingdom the way that Jesus envisioned it. Now, you know that a lot can happen over the breaking of bread. Walls come down and people open up and they share their stories. They cry, they they laugh. They can walk away having shared a common experience. You've shared common experiences with other people. That's why stories start, hey, remember that time we were at such and such a place? That's a common experience that you've shared. But here's where the disciples did it differently. It's not just that they broke bread, but that they did it with glad and generous hearts, praising God. So while they had left the physical vicinity of a church building, they took the faith with them into their homes to magnify what had happened in church. It's not just that they shared a common experience of food, but now they have shared a common experience of worship. And that's significant to our growth as disciples. Because if you go back to that study in in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships and you apply it to your personal relationship with Christ, it would make sense that if you're going to grow as a disciple, you need to carry worship out into the rest of the world with you. Since it takes 50 hours of time with someone just to even consider them a casual friend, If you just attend worship on Sunday mornings with absolute perfect attendance, it's going to take you almost a year to claim just a casual relationship with Christ, which if you want to get down and dirty honest about it, is how most of us approach it most of the time. I want you to think about this expression. He worships the ground she walks on. There, this does not mean that there is a man out there somewhere who is singing hymns to the ground that his wife walks on. That is not what the expression means. It means that he adores her, that he loves being around her, that he respects her, that he makes her a priority in his life. We do not need to go and each get ourselves an in-home organ or a pulpit to worship out in the world. What we need to do is to build that desire for a, a relationship with God outside of the walls of Sunday morning worship. In churchy terms, it would be creating what is called a liturgy of the everyday. Liturgy is, is that order of worship that we participate in, the way, that, the way that the worship service flows. So what might that look like? What might a liturgy of the ordinary everyday look like? I want you to think about the first thing that you do in the morning, like the second that your eyes open in the morning. Are you somebody, your eyes open, you pop right out of bed, you hit that alarm and you just go running. You are going to face the day. Or are you somebody who rolls over, grabs your phone, starts scrolling through to see what texts have come in, what's going on in the world, you're checking it all out. What if instead of either of those things, you just laid still for a minute. And you invited God's presence into your life for the day. That's, that's what a call to worship is. That's what that's what Pastor Sung's doing when we start the worship service. He's inviting us to be in relationship with God. Inviting God to be in relationship with us. You can do that in your own home. And then maybe you're somebody who, who goes for a walk or you go to the gym you're participating in some, some sort of exercise. I would hope that involves breathing, that, that you were breathing during that process. Could there be a few minutes where, where you are very intentional about inhaling God's grace in your life and breathing out God's forgiveness to those in your life that you need to reconcile with? Perhaps, perhaps, Perhaps this can be a time of confession in your life. And what what if you have crazy hectic mornings? You've got to get the kids to school or you have a long commute or you have a very early appointment. Are there moments? Are there moments moments like when you're sitting there making the 80,000th peanut butter and jelly for school lunch that instead instead of just going through the motions that you can be grateful? that you have a full life and that you have a full belly. And then there's work, there's paid work and volunteer work and housework. All of us, everyone in this room, participates in some kind of work every single day. Is there two to three minutes in that work day where you can talk to God about your joys, your frustrations, maybe even that's the place where you start that conversation about purpose? What am I doing here? What am I doing here? What have you called me to? Now, of course, there's probably going to be meals throughout your day, and you may or may not say grace. But, but could, you, could you be mindful? Instead of checking your phone or eating at your desk or watching TV through dinner, could, could you eat in silence and, and give God a chance to speak into your life? Could you eat with others? And, and see glimpses of what God is doing in, in their life, could you really think about the food that you are eating and, and give thanks for all of those involved in the process of making that food possible? And what about going to bed? Are you one of those people that has a very regimented schedule, or are you somebody that falls asleep in front of the TV? Is, is there five minutes in there somewhere where you could give some thought to your day to consider those that that you have interacted with and what kinds of things that they are facing maybe give thanks for all that you went through in this time period because you, you did trade a whole day of your life for it so that's worthy of a little bit of reflection see these are patterns and these patterns create rhythms and that transforms the way that we live it takes all of the joy that we experience in corporate worship together with all of the other believers and makes it deeply personal when we go out in the world and we continue our walk with Christ. And when you do those things long enough, it just becomes a part of who you are. A couple of years ago, I had to go attend a meeting up in Sterling, Virginia. Sterling is just outside of Washington, D.C., and it was a gathering of a very specific group of pastors you probably never thought about this, but did you know that there's different kinds of pastors and they specialize in different kinds of things, just like there's different kinds of doctors that specialize in different kinds of things? I'm what they call a redevelopment pastor. And a redevelopment pastor matches up very well with those who do new church development. And so they had gotten all of us together, those of us that do it across, across the denomination. And one of the characteristics of this, this type of pastor Is a um, is a focus on the Holy Spirit, which which creeps Presbyterians out because we we do not do Holy Spirit at all. Um, But but it is a value that is inherent in in the type of pastor that that I am, and so we talk about that a lot. And we talk about Jesus, and we're very excited about it. It's it's kind of a hard thing for this group of people to to contain. So we were all up there, and um, we had gone through our meeting, and we had worship at the church and we went back to the hotel and we were gonna meet a half hour later to go out to a restaurant. Now to make this story make sense to you, there's something that you have to know about me. I grew up in a family where every single meal, every single meal looked like it could have been on an episode of Leave it to Beaver. And, And what I mean by that is that every dinner included some form of meat and some form of potatoes. That's it. That's, that's what growing up looked like for me. It was so basic that, um, I have to confess, I'd never heard of Chinese food until I went to college. That's crazy, right? <laughs> um, which is my way of telling you that I'm not, by nature, an adventurous eater. I am not. So I cannot even begin to express to you the fear and panic that went through my heart when they informed us that for dinner that night, we were going to be eating at the local Afghani restaurant. The Afghani restaurant. How many of you have ever been in an Afghani restaurant? Not a lot. I was so distressed about this over what I was going to eat that it never crossed my mind that there were about to be 30 clearly Christian pastors about to head into a restaurant that, that in all likelihood was probably owned by someone who was not a follower of Jesus Christ. And it was only after the fact did it dawn on me that this had, to be, this had the potential to be a completely overwhelming experience for everybody involved. So we got to the restaurant and then I sat down at the, towards the end of a very long table with two colleagues that I'd known for a long time and immediately we start telling stories and we're talking about what God's doing in our lives and in our churches and we share these struggles and, and joys. Two hours go by, two, two hours go by and I have to confess that not once, not one time did it ever dawn on me much less bother me that I had no idea what I was eating. And all across the restaurant, the same thing was playing out all over the place. And when it was over, these 30 people profusely thanked the wait staff. They left a generous tip and, more importantly, left a profound witness. Now, there were no hymns. There was no public readings of the scripture. There was no call to worship, but there was breaking of the bread. And sharing of the good news and expressions of Christian compassion and concern, and a witness to the unity of the body of Christ, and it was worship. And that's important because I think sometimes we forget that worship can be our witness. I found out later from the pastor, um the, the host pastor of this event, that when he first started going to the restaurant, the owner most definitely was not a follower of Christ. But because the pastor kept coming and kept breaking bread and kept bringing other believers not to proselytize, but to share that joy of community, that witness of breaking the bread, that the owner had become very curious about the whole thing. And that curiosity led him to want to be a member, a part of that group. And so it was that by the time that we got there, the restaurant was in fact owned by a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now that's the early church. That's exactly how it worked in the early church. As we we read it, it's described in Acts. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Disciples are people who take worship out into the world to magnify God's presence in their own lives and in the lives of others. We grow. We grow and the church grows when worship becomes who we are every day, not just what we do for an hour on Sundays. Now we gather here and that's important because we have to equip and encourage each other to take it out there. So what we do here is very important. But if you want to magnify Jesus Christ and grow as disciples, then you leave here, you go out there, you praise the Lord, and you pass the bread. Let's pray together. Holy God, help us to magnify you in what we do. We don't have to be wild and crazy and obnoxious about that. We just have to live our lives in a way that says that that you matter to us, not just for an hour on Sunday mornings, but in all that we do. Help us to be intentional about inviting your presence into our lives each day, to give us those moments for confession, opportunities to offer ourselves in service, and then a blessing and benediction at the end of each day. Thank you for your presence with us this morning. Be with us as we go out into the world. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.